The life stories of refugees have all the narrative tropes of myth, replete with world-shattering conflicts, perilous voyages, and courageous heroes who sometimes get to live happily ever after. Join us at UNSW Sydney's Kensington campus for Refuge, a free Sydney Writers' Festival talk on the 23rd of May. Hear from Pulitzer Prize-winning author Viet Tung Nguyen and Miles Franklin Award-winning author Shankari Chandran in a conversation hosted by refugee law expert and advocate Daniel Gazelbash as they discuss stories of seeking asylum. To secure your seats, visit unswcentreforideas.com or check out the show notes. What can we learn while we're apart? I'm Rob Brooks, and I will be interviewing a number of UNSW's leading researchers. My name is Linda Romanowska, and I am a PhD candidate at the Faculty of Built Environments at UNSW, and I do my research in the area of sustainable built environment, focusing on green infrastructure in cities. Linda, welcome. It's... um... It's wonderful to have a chance to chat to you and we're looking forward to your talk. Do you, would you give the listeners just a bit of a taste about what uh, what your talk is about? Hi, Rob. A pleasure to be talking to you. Yes, in uh, my talk, I talk about the importance of nature, the essential value of nature. That is the title of my talk. And I think everybody will relate how during the times of the pandemic right now, we sort of rediscovered the importance of nature for us, especially for those of us who live in cities and do not take nature or presence of nature for granted. And I talk about how important it is for us to have these green spaces in cities, but how sometimes it is difficult for policymakers and urban planners to implement these green projects. And I explain a little bit why that is and what are the causes for that and how we scientists can help to make our cities greener. So you're one of those researchers who brings together a range of different disciplines and sets of ideas and quite a unique combination. Would you give us a sense of what those disciplines are? Yes. So we are talking about valuing nature-based solutions, uh, natural capital, or in more simple words, nature in the city. So to do that, we need to bring together different disciplines and different fields of research and practice uh, to be able to actually do that valuation. So what we need here, we need to understand First of all, the nature itself. So we need to understand the ecosystems and their services. So this is where uh, sciences like environmental management, but also uh, biology um, come in. And we also need all these other aspects. We also need to bring in the understanding of economics because very often we need to, when, we, when we talk about value, we talk about economic value. So this is where we need to bring in the understanding in economics and especially environmental economics. And the third area of that is very important here is because we talk about urban areas, uh, urban planning also has to play a part here under an umbrella field of sustainable urban planning. So that sounds to me like you've had a very interesting journey in getting to this particular set of research questions. Would you give us a sense of what that journey was? Yes, that is indeed a bit of a long journey. Um, um, And along this journey, I have gathered the expertise and experience and training in all these different areas. So I started 
in something that seems to be the furthest away from this, which is the economic side. So my first degree is in business management, which focused very heavily on finance and economics. And my first career was in the industry, in telecommunications. So not so much linked to nature in the city. Uh, but during this first career, I it was going well and I couldn't complain about anything. But I at some point realized that my true calling and my true mission um, and something that I wanted to do uh, really passionately was somewhere else. It really was in doing something for the environment because I had had this very close connection with nature since my early years, even as a child. So I wanted to do something for the environment also because I was seeing already then all the destruction we are doing as humans, how we are not taking care of this very important capital the natural capital upon which we actually do depend. So I went back and studied again, and I studied sustainable energy, urban and environmental planning, focusing on environmental management. So that gave me this knowledge and expertise and understanding of the environmental side of it. And right after that, I ended up being involved in international policy making. And for the last 10 years, I have been involved in policy making, mostly as policy advisor or policy consultant, focusing on policies that revolve around climate change, uh, environmental issues, sustainability issues. And one of the, my most important contributions in policy making was the development of the European Union strategy on adaptation to climate change, which, and then afterwards, I was involved in a lot of the processes, all the policy initiatives that implemented this strategy. And that put me in contact with a lot of decision makers, hundreds and thousands of decision makers on all levels of governance, international, national, regional, local, uh, that were all already thinking about the impacts of climate change. That was 10 years ago. So climate change impacts were not yet obvious like they are now. But these were people who knew they, that this is going to come and we have to do something about it. And they were thinking about the potential solutions. So in these conversations, there was one common thread that came through, that one best solution seemingly could be bringing nature into cities and especially for adaptation to climate change in cities because it, it was obvious that it would address not only adaptation to climate change, but also mitigation, meaning capturing the greenhouse gas emissions, but it also could address all the other different issues that, that we face in cities and challenges. So it seemed like this ideal package in one solution. So it seemed like a no-brainer that this is the way we should go. At the same time, we did not see it happening. We did not see uh, a big expansion of green areas in cities. So in these conversations, what became clear that what's happening in practice is that even those decision makers that are convinced and they know that, that this is necessary, they were not successful in designing great infrastructure projects, in getting them funded, in getting them managed, um, and presenting them in a way that actually led to imp implementation. So there were significant barriers to making our cities more sustainable in this way. So that's how I came to the idea that something needs to be done about this. And because I always also had interest in research and trying to be on that side that delivers the, the primary knowledge and evidence and approaches that are robust and science-based, 
that can as, uh, assist these decision makers. Um, so that's why I undertook this challenge and went forward. And here I am since uh, two years really focusing on this issue uh, as my primary objective. So uh, you're going to tell the listeners in a moment in your talk about a couple of projects that typify this approach that you, you took. But subjectively, uh, I don't know if you're politically, if it's wise for you to do this politically or not, um, or if you're, you know, collaborators will be will be upset with you. But subjectively, what are your favourite cities or parts of cities that really embody this approach that you um, that you're selling? Yes, I, I certainly would not want to single out because there are quite a few cities all around the world that are doing a great job, and they have found ways to sometimes overcome these barriers or go around the rules in one way or another to still implement and make our cities green, sustainable, healthy. Um, and Australia has a number of examples. And in fact, Australia is one of the places where I would say we are blessed with urban decision makers that recognize this value of nature and put a lot of emphasis. Um, and of course, if you're, if you are, um, a person living in one urban area, you might not know the realities in other urban areas, uh, but just look around you. If you see even a single tree uh, anywhere from any of your windows, you already live in a green city. So if that is the case, then you probably already are in a city uh, where this is taken in, in some consideration because there are so many places around the world where you would not see any green from most um, homes. Wow, that's an unbelievably low bar. Jeez. Um, okay. So given this broad perspective that you've got on the question, are you generally optimistic? I am optimistic, yes. I think that we should be optimistic in a sense that if there is a problem, um, and it is a big problem, it is a challenge, and it maybe has persisted for years and decades, uh, we should have the optimism that we can do something about it. And even if we have to take tiny baby, baby steps towards the solutions, that is still doable and that still contributes to the final solution. Now, our listeners are, are very interested in what, what research is like, what a research career is like. Our listeners are very interested in the process of research and what it's like to be a researcher. Can you give us a sense of what a typical day involves for you? Yes, I probably am not the best person to ask that because as you heard, my career has not been in academia for a very long time. Uh, but uh, what my day looks like and what my research process looks like is that actually research is a lot about learning. While it might seem that we come in and we are the ones who are giving the evidence and we're teaching others about our field, uh, in the process is actually us learning. And it's constant challenge for your mind, for your understanding, for your analytical skills, for your methodological skills. You have to be scrupulous. You have to be present. You have to be very precise in what you're doing. And that requires attention to detail um, and in-depth thinking, but also at the same time, never losing this big picture thinking. So there's research work for me is more about uh, intellectual work and in both directions, in taking things in 
and then trying to produce outputs that are actually usable for other people. Now, because I work to, uh, close together and it's important for me to work together with the end users, I also meet these people. Of course, right now it is more difficult. That is more limited right now. We are not meeting face-to-face -face in most cases, but these conversations are also very, very important because it helps me to align my research with the actual reality on the ground and the needs of the decision makers. So that is also a big part of my research. And then of course, also collaborations with other researchers. That is also important that we actually come together and we do not work in separate silos, especially on these areas where uh, this combination of very different skills is highly necessary. You involved in uh, a big cross-disciplinary, multi-person, multi-city initiatives, but our listeners are very keen to know what they can do as individuals. So what are the one or two sort of gems of advice that you can give mm -hmm. people who want to live in green cities um, and that they can act on themselves? Yes, there is, in fact, quite a lot people can do uh, to make the cities greener and add their effort for, the, for it to happen, especially homeowners. Homeowners are responsible for what happens with their land. And one of the negative tendencies that has been popular in the last decade was to pave over the gardens and the backyards. And that is going against this principle of having na nature in the cities in all these different scales, from really small scale to the large scale. And even if you leave your backyard green and unpaved and having grass and maybe some shrubs and, and flowers in there, even if it seems that this is a small scale um, effort and it only maybe seems it only benefits you, it is not the case because it is this combination of these small green patches in the city that combine to actually deliver large scale impacts and actually help contributing to addressing a lot of urban environmental problems. So what you do in your background actually really counts. And even for these people who might not own their own backyard, even just putting potted plants on balconies is already a very good thing to do because you might provide not only um, aesthetic benefits to you and any, anyone who passes, but it also provides, for example, habitats and food for, for the pollinators and all these different benefits for both nature itself and the, and the citizens and people and you, of course, because do not underestimate the highly beneficial benefits of having even small pieces of nature near you on your mental health, but also in your physical health. Even if you're not being, you know, actively exercising in nature, just having a presence of plants in your life that already benefits you. How are you surviving the COVID-19 pandemic? All the distancing and the isolation. Pizza? Wine? Netflix? Well, some of us. But many, if not most of us, independent of location, nationality, and religion or lifestyle, seek refuge and respite in something else. Nature. 
while the streets, shops, and offices are deserted, every time I go out to my local beachside park, it's brimming with people. Distancing, but walking, exercising, taking in the fresh air and the beauty of the open green space. It feels good. And my Facebook feed is literally taken over by photographic reports of avid nature goers hidden side of my friends I never knew existed before. It is a collective, visual and verbal, ode and a love song to nature. Being allowed out in the nature is seen as a key fundamental right, even in places with rather strict distancing and isolation measures. It is readily perceived by those making key decisions as crucial to keep populations healthy and sane during an extraordinarily stressful and challenging time. Because while we might be able to substitute human contact with an online version to some extent, however limited, there is no satisfactory replacement for the connection with nature. Filling our lungs with fresh, oxygen-rich air, immersing in the beauty of lush flowering green, hearing the relaxing bird songs and bees, the calming rustle of leaves in the wind. You will likely agree that watching nature documentaries on Netflix just does not cut it. And so, while we are apart, the importance of nature to us humans has become so very evident and undeniable. We might have lost the full awareness of it, over decades of busy and increasingly urbanized lifestyles spent largely indoors and on busy city streets. Still, nature is inexhaustingly and incessantly providing us with essential ecosystem services. And nowhere else are they as crucial as in our cities. Cities are marvelous places, hustling and bustling with knowledge and innovation, economic and cultural activity, progress. But our urban developments have increasingly pushed out the green, replacing it with concrete, asphalt, sealed surfaces, leaving less and less space for natural ecosystems and us, as part of those ecosystems, to flourish and thrive. In recent years, we are slowly waking up to the fact that nature provides up to more than 50 documented benefits to our cities providing us with clean air and water, temperature and wind regulation, flood and drought management, capturing pollution, including climate change causing greenhouse gas emissions, enhancing our physical and mental health, as well as providing us with spaces for recreation, active lifestyle and social connection. Along with this rising awareness, urban citizens are increasingly demanding more trees to be planted, urban gardening plots to be established, public access to waterways and coasts to be safeguarded, demanding more of accessible, well-maintained and biodiverse urban green. Research consistently shows that we are ready to pay considerably more just to live in a greener neighborhood or closer to a patch of nature in a city. Inclusive access to urban green spaces is also enshrined in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Our urban policymakers and planners are not deaf to this. They are hearing these calls, and many have the best intentions to respond and make our cities greener. But often, they get stopped in their tracks. Because the business as usual in urban planning and infrastructure development is geared towards engineered, man-made technological solutions. 
so-called gray infrastructure. And while it undeniably has an important role, it has delivered results. Alas, this has locked us in a path where all systems are made to cater to these gray solutions alone. And nature-based alternatives are not even being considered. Despite an increasing body of evidence showing that natural ecosystem-based solutions to many urban problems alone or in combination with traditional measures can accomplish the same goals while providing much more of additional benefits. More often than not, nature-based solutions, urban green infrastructure, deliver a higher value for money than our traditional human-made constructions alone. So why is it then so hard to add more green to our urban fabric? Some would say we simply do not have the space for it in our cities, and rightly so. We do need space for all the buildings and streets and the industrial areas and shopping malls and parking. But that is not as big of a problem as we often think. Yes, large urban parks or forests requiring large spaces may offer some benefits that smaller green areas cannot, but there is immense value in so-called novel ecosystems, which are integrated within our built infrastructure, for example, as green roofs or green walls. Also, smaller scale dispersed urban green, a single tree in each backyard, a flowery lawn in an alleyway, rows of potted plants on terraces or balconies, small squares, pocket parks, and microforests, they all provide considerable and measurable benefits. There is space for nature in our cities. I argue that a much bigger issue than the lack of space is the lack of knowledge. In fact, if we had the missing knowledge on the value of urban nature, we would likely reconsider and change our priorities on how the urban space is allocated and used. We humans as species are a part of nature and have always existed in greater or lesser embeddedness within natural ecosystems. Still, despite that, we have surprisingly little knowledge on the full value of the benefits nature is providing to us and our cities. Some of us might even have an innate aversion to the idea of putting a number on nature feeling that it is and should be considered invaluable. But the engineering departments of our city administrations, private property developers, the finance departments, those who are making important decisions and designing budgets, all of them primarily operate with numbers. With numbers that are readily available for engineered solutions, but are largely missing for nature-based options. A friend of mine who works in the local government of a picturesque town on the coast of Portugal was faced with exactly this problem. The town was increasingly being threatened by flash floods from a stream that runs through it. The proposed solution initially was to construct a series of dams upstream of the river. But my friend's team in the municipality thought that a nature-based solution, restoration of the riverbed, and an establishment of a managed riverside park as flood retention area, would protect the town from the floods just as well. But importantly, it would also provide a new recreational green space for the citizens with all its benefits. Furthermore, it could also support local tourism as they envisioned new nature trail 
and a bike path through the park. It seemed to be a clear win-win-win. Yet, the finance department was not convinced. While the cost of building a dam and its one-purpose benefit were easy to calculate and estimate, my friend's team could not provide the same detail of a quantitative valuation of the varied and diverse range of benefits of the Riverbank Park. In the end, they found a way around the issue, and the park opened in year 2017 to the delight of the locals and guests. And the town of Kashkesh became one of the world's top 100 sustainable tourist destinations. It's wonderful there, do go visit. But even more, last month, the new Riverbank Park saved the town from an encroaching forest fire, an unplanned benefit. But it all came to be through challenge, overcoming skepticism, and my friend being stubbornly persistent. In retrospect, he confided in me how much easier it would have been if they would have had the same easy way to estimate the value of all the benefits the park delivers in economic terms. If they had had the numbers their financing department wanted to hear. Without putting a number on nature, we simply cannot have a fair and evidence-based comparison between the different urban solutions, gray, green, or other, on an equal basis. Without valuation, we cannot build a successful business case for that Riverside Park or Green Roof Program or Planting a Million Trees Plan and attract funding and financing that would drive the green urban expansion for the benefit of us all. Us scientists have an important role to play here. Our task is to step in and help the urban decision makers to make robust, evidence-based decisions that have the greatest societal benefit. I am working in close collaboration with urban policy and decision makers to develop the tools and knowledge that would enable them to make the urban green expansion happen. And to make our cities not only visibly greener, but also healthier, safer, more sustainable, and more livable places for us all. Because what will get us through now and in the future is nature. The Insomnia series is a partnership between the UNSW Grand Challenges Program and the Center for Ideas.